Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. So with the Onyx Hunt app, uh, specifically for the spring scouting and shed hunting season, like we're about to talk about in this episode, you can use the tracking tool to really help yourself while you're out doing shed hunting or scouting, uh, specifically with shed hunting. When you turn on the tracking tool, it'll track your mark just as it sounds as you're walking and hiking, tracking your distance, the amount of time and you know miles per hour that you're going. And everything within that, you can save that track and look back and make sure that, you know, you're covering a specific area as good as you'd like or, you know, kind of game plan if you're looking for a specific buck sheds. Uh, there's a bunch of different ways you can use this tracking tool. But in the spring here, uh, that's a, a great way to use it for shed hunting. If you want to check out the Onyx Hunt app, head over to onyxmaps.com. You can use the coupon code EMW. That'll save yourself 20% off of the app. Also, University of Elk Hunting, Elk 101, and Corey Jacobson have put together the most comprehensive elk hunting learning course available. So the beginning of the course is something that uh, is really great for this time of year and goes hand-in-hand with scouting with Onyx. There's a huge section in the University of Elk Hunting online course devoted to finding and locating elk using online tools such as Onyx. And that feature alone led me to finding the meadow where I ended up killing my bull uh, out in Idaho this past year. You know, a mixture of using Onyx and the University of Elk Hunting uh, to be able to figure that out and learn kind of what the elk needed there. So if you want to check out the University of Elk Hunting online course, head over to elk101.com. Use a coupon code East meets West. That'll save yourself 20% off of the course. And lastly, a Mountain Tough Fitness. So what Mountain Tough Fitness is, is their all-access program is 12 months of training to all to put you in the always-ready mindset, to prepare your, your mind and your body to put yourself through some of the the toughest scenarios possible, and also just help you grind it out throughout the hunting season. These workouts are designed specifically for hunters, by hunters, Navy SEALs, ex-military personnel, trainers. There's there's a lot that went into this and a lot of R&D that went into creating these different programs. And within them is one of them called the Backcountry Hunter Spring Training Camp, one of the newer ones that's basically a game-changing cardio and endurance program that is a 60-day program with kind of a blend of cardio and strength uh, to build a significant endurance base in the spring months. So that's you know for the months coming up here. And you could just do that program itself for $150.00. And uh, so it's basically 60 days worth of training for only $2.50 a day. So definitely check that out and all the other programs they have at mountaintough.com. And also the latest podcast I did with Dustin Diefenderfer, one of the founders, uh, just about a month ago. So check that out. All right. So this episode is all about shed hunting and spring scouting for mountain bucks with the one and only Troy Pottinger. 
So this past weekend, I finally got out to do some, you know, shed hunting slash scouting myself. And and I knew with uh, the snow that we still had that it was going to be more of a shed hunting than a than a scouting for, you know, rut sign like scrapes and things like I, you know, sometimes would be doing. Uh, but anyways, on Saturday, the snow was still pretty heavy where, where I'm at. So I drove a couple hours away to find a spot where I heard there was no snow and there was, uh, I wouldn't say there was no snow, but there was a lot less and I was able to find some bare hillsides and things and, uh, spent some time there, got in about 10 miles hiking up and down and learned a whole lot. You know, I had some cameras out that I, I had left out from the season and a couple I still left out, but, uh, you know, check those and found some additional areas where I think some of these bucks might be coming from. Um, and then into Sunday, I decided to go um, closer to home a little bit. And snow is really heavy. Almost got my truck stuck, and just it was it was tough. But I uh, had some cameras out there still, which were promising. I found some areas that um, once the snow melts a little more, I'm going to spend more time here in the in the spring. So looking gonna actually try to pick up some sheds in this this area there was a concentration of bucks in the last month and a half in these hemlocks you know pine trees and uh the other types of conifers there they were hanging out in that area quite a bit i had cameras still on scrapes bucks were working the licking branch up until i don't know even into february here i had a couple that had their head up in the branch not pawing up the ground but just you know communicating using that licking branch and and, uh, so the, had a couple pretty good bucks that looked like they made, well, they made it through the, the hunting season and they were still holding the first week of February there. So I'm, I'd assume they've dropped by now, but if not, they should be dropping soon. So I'm just backed out of that spot for a little bit here and, and, uh, hopefully someone else doesn't go in and pick them all up, but either way it, uh, that was kind of promising to, to be able to see that type of information and even with the snow you can still do uh you know a lot of great scouting see all the deer moving um find big tracks just just a whole bunch of good stuff there so um yeah with that with that being said here i plan on you know getting out some more uh this upcoming weekend and everything else so let's uh let's get into the podcast here we got a a good one uh with troy pottinger all right, we're live. I'm back for another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast, and I've brought back on the line Troy Pottinger, who I have promised that I'd bring back on to talk about when we got into you know the the late winter spring uh, scouting season here. So, Troy, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Bo, and I appreciate you having me on again. Yeah, I'm I'm pumped to get in this one. You know, you and I, we we talk. I think just about weekly, um, either through text or Instagram or whatever. And and uh, it's crazy how fast the season went by. And now we're you know getting into the well, hopefully getting through the winter months here and starting to see some you know light at the end of the tunnel. I, I'm not sure how it's been for you guys, but for us, it's been a pretty light winter, which I'm very okay with (laughs) yeah you know Bo we actually for the west and 
the the intermountains that I live in, which are a part of the Rocky Mountains, we usually have a lot more snow on the ground right now than what we have. And yeah, it's been it's been lighter out here too, which I'm I'm excited about because I'm chomping at the bit to get out. I've been out a little bit. The snow was a little deep, but you literally called me today and I'm looking outside and I don't have any snow in my fields for the first time all winter. Wow. <laughs> so is this, this is about the time you're about ready to kick it off and get going. You were just saying you're getting done with basketball season and now it's time to start hitting the scouting hard. Exactly. Um, I do coach a short basketball season, a middle school season every year um, from the start of January until actually tomorrow. I'm done tomorrow. And what I usually do in January is based on what the snow allows me to get into effectively, I, I do everything I can on the weekends, um, looking for some sheds or go scouting, backtracking where, you know, where there's not too much snow, but I went up two different weekends and tried and got into two feet of snow everywhere I went. So I'm really walking over the top of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, even, you know, even, even tracks or sign that I need to see, you know, a month from now that is going to, when all the snow dissipates, I'm going to be able to read all the scrapes, the, the new trails that once that snow comes off, you know, this, you, the trails are still there. Those scrapes are still there. Uh, the sheds are obviously a lot easier to not miss. So yeah, I'm you're literally you're calling me right now. I mean, it's go time. It's green light. I'm literally so excited about this weekend. And I've got a I got President's Day off being a teacher, so I've got a three day weekend to do some serious ground pounding. There you go. That's awesome. <laughs> That's good. Well, it, I mean, as, as the time of recording <laughs> this, this is also Valentine's Day weekend too. <laughs> Yes. Yes. And I've got a Friday. We're doing a dinner. There you so go. Friday. That's in the schedule. We have dinner for Friday. And then I have a feeling I'm going to get lost a little bit in the mountains this weekend too. <laughs> it just, it eats, it eats at me when I look out my window and see no snow in my field at 2,800 feet. That means some of the stuff above me that I can get into, you know, won't have too much snow in it. Yeah. That's awesome. And, uh, so Troy, you and I talked like it was back in October, just as you know, you had been through the earlier part of your season and everything. And we were just kicking off our whitetail season here. I'm interested to hear, you know, how your season went and, you know, just a little bit about that. Uh, absolutely. My, my season ball went actually extremely well, other than I did not kill the one target buck that I basically said I'm killing him or no other deer. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a big but there. Um, you know, hunting these mountain whitetails, I don't always kill a target buck the very first year I target him. Um, I'm letting these bucks get grow up to get to five years old before I even even go after them, no matter how big they are at four, I let them go. Um, now my son, on the other hand, he's got that four and a half year old rule where if he sees a nice four and a half year old, he's perfectly happy with that. He'll take them. But 
we do set aside a buck or two that we think has incredible potential. And that's the kind of buck I hunted this year. We left him alone on purpose. Even as a 165 inch four-year-old last year, we left him alone. And this year he just, he put on some size and we kind of felt like he had the genetics and showed everything we wanted. And he bumped up to, I, I feel like he would, would have grossed in the high 70s, low 80s this year as a 5x5 five five on public land, a mountain whitetail, which is just a giant in this yeah, country. It is. So, so Bo, I put all my, I, I put it all in on him. He, he's a state record type, typical, possible state record. So, yeah, it was a little different this year. It's been about, let's see, it's 2020. It's been 17 years since I've had a buck that I thought was a state record. And the last one I hunted, I killed him and he was number two. So this was one of those years, 17 years later, where my mindset this year, Bo, was I am actually okay with either killing this big white tail or learning a lot about him. Because understand, I've never hunted him before. I just kept track of him and I left him alone. Yeah. And I moved in on him this year. I made a big move on him and I got right in his wheelhouse. And he was frequenting a big scrape that I built uh, in an area he was in there weekly, literally weekly from June or July, excuse me. You've seen the pictures from yeah. July until late, until late season. I talk a lot about a buck's hideout. This big mountain buck's hideout. I had him on camera every week, mostly a lot at night, but some daylight too. Understand I work for a living, so I can't hunt him every day. <laughs> and and he's several hours from my home. So my time was limited on hunting him, but it was important to me to use the days that I had to target him. All that to say, I learned a ton about this whitetail. He taught me a lot about him. And I did not end up getting a crack at him in the daylight this season, but he showed me enough of his cards that he's in trouble early season next year if he makes the winner. Huh. And you you had shared with me some of the trail cam photos of this deer, and he is absolutely just unbelievable for a mountain whitetail, or really for any whitetail, uh, to be honest. And that yeah, that's that's crazy. When you when you were telling me about this deer and your focus on him, like it just it blew my mind. He, uh, he's the kind of deer bow that when I had four year old bucks walk by or through this scrape, I didn't even look at him twice. Four year old, 140, 150 white tails. Uh, I had a, I actually had about a six year old buck walk through that, that I literally, I mean, he's a great buck, but when you get one, one archery tag for a state and all you get is one tag and where I'm at right now in my whitetail hunting, as far as what's really important to me, I'm, I'm totally okay with taking a year or two on a buck like this. If I have to, mm -hmm. I wanted to push it to the end. You know, he, he just kept giving me enough confidence that I thought he was going to make a mistake. And, you know, one factor I'll throw in there is he was starting to make some mistakes in late November, which, for us out here is a really important part of our rut where deer are on their feet. And I, I was fired up. I thought I had him, I thought I had him 
dead to rights at my scrapes and checking does because he was showing some daylight activity. And I had a pack of wolves literally as I'm driving into the mountains to go hunt him. I had left him alone for four days and I'm driving into the mountains and I'm stoked. There's no tire tracks whatsoever within five miles of him. And then I notice in the snow, one set of tracks of wolf tracks. Then I know three, or I notice two, then three, then four. And then pretty soon there's like eight sets of wolf tracks in my road. And I keep driving and I just keep praying that these wolves aren't headed up into this drainage, this basin. And sure enough, this is no shit. These wolves went literally right into where I was hunting. And so, so what happened there, Bo, is, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to ask you, yeah, what, what happens when, when the wolves move into an area like that? I mean, I I think I can assume, but I, I want to hear, you know, what happens with that. So I went in on an evening to sleep all night in my truck. So he wouldn't hear me the next day. I was going to sit all day on him. And he was frequenting this one big scrape that I have. And there were still a couple does in there that I didn't think had been covered. Anyway, I got in close. I parked my truck where I do. I, I slept the night. And in the middle of the night, I got there at about 1030. I real close to about 1030. Parked the truck, had my bed made in the back, crawled in my back seat of my four-door and went to sleep. And at about two in the morning, I heard rustling outside my pickup. And I got up. I heard some noise. And I turned on my headlamp and there was wolves at my pickup. So... That really made my heart sink because that means they were right there. And as soon as I turned my headlamp on, they scattered, you know, they took off and I couldn't, I didn't have time to, uh, you know, I didn't have time to get out and spook them off or anything. And obviously I didn't want to like make any noise because I'm still hoping that a quarter mile to a half a mile away that my buck might be coming towards me in the morning. Anyway, Mm -hmm. he actually, where he, where he stays and was bedding, and I had him totally backtracked and figured out where he was coming from. And I, within a quarter mile, I had his bedding zone figured out. So 400 yard circle, I had his bedding area because he kept tracks, kept coming out of it and down over to my scrape. And he was actually working uphill to me. So I was in a pretty good kill position to get him. I was coming in from a, the opposite direction. He liked to travel. So it was a money setup. It was dialed. Uh, but anyway, you know, I had to wait till daylight to get up to see where the wolf tracks had been. And I was scared to death that there was going to be wolf tracks all over in at my stand. And I didn't want to make any noise that night because I thought, what if I still get a crack at him in the morning? If I make a bunch of noise out here at night, he's going to hear me from his bedding area, a half a mile to three quarters of a mile away. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of real quiet, dead, silent nights. So I just played it. I just played it conservative, went in and hunted him all the next day. And thank God he was still on my camera, but the wolves literally pushed him nocturnal. He got real careful. Mm -hmm. The closest wolf traps to my stand were about 300 yards. And they were literally running all over in those hills or in the drainage right there, just looking for something to eat. Yeah. And when the, when the wolves show up like that in my country, my big white tail bucks hunker down and they play it careful, you know, and if they get a wolf pack on them, they're gone. You, they're either going to get killed eaten by a wolf or they're going to get pushed for a mile or two to get away from him. 
And then I usually don't see a buck like that if he gets pushed by wolves. And this is based on past experience. I usually won't see that buck for a month. Okay. If he survives. Yeah. I, I was going to say, how do they adapt to the to the wolves? You know, I know you said they went, you know, they go nocturnal a lot and everything. But, like, do, um, do they end up moving, you know, over a drainage? Or, like, or is it kind of dependent on the buck and the, the type of pressure that they have? The wolves like to hunt at night. So they're getting hunted all night by these damn wolves. So these bucks try to rest during the day mm-hmm. if they get a chance. But yeah, they really, in my opinion, from what I've experienced with these wolves is when they, when I get wolves in a drainage and they're being, they're, pre- they're pestering all the deer looking for an easy pickings. The bucks one are going to try to get the hell away from them. And the older bucks know to move a long ways if they need to. So yes, I've had I've had bucks move four or five miles. Jeez, <laughs> you know, four or five miles—a lot of country in the mountains. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Think about when you're out elk hunting. Four or five miles on a map is a long ways in the mountains, up and over mountains. Yeah, it's one thing to look at it on Google Earth or Onyx or whatever, and then to actually be in that country and. <laughs> See the the differences in that and walk it. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a long ways. Right, and I've and I've had bucks show up in different drainages within two or three days after a wolf pack was in another drainage. Mm-hmm. All this to say that big deer got real nocturnal. As soon as the wolf showed up, he completely quit showing daylight activity. So this was with two weeks left in the season. And so I knew it was going to be a little while and I prayed that those wolves would leave. So I actually went and checked on a number two buck of mine, just in case thinking, Hey, I've only got two weeks left. I just had all these wolves in here. They're with me right now. I'm going to go ahead and drive around in this drainage a little bit, make a little noise. And and one thing wolves don't like is, you know, vehicles. So I, 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 I kind of played that game, got out of there, went and checked on another buck. He was there, a great five-year-old that I was hoping I could leave alone until he was six. So I thought, okay, I've got a few days off. I'm going to go ahead and hunt him and give my big deer a chance to come back. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Did you did you end up having any encounters with that deer? No, but we had a 155 or 60-inch four-and-a-half-year-old walk through. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! You know, just an unbelievable four and a half year old. I, I can, yeah. You know, I think I've sent the pictures to you, but I have send you a lot. So yeah. anyway, we had a beautiful four and a half year old come through, and we told my son. I said, "Son, you can shoot him, but I'm not going to shoot him." And my boy Ty was like, "Oh yeah, I'll, I'll smoke that sucker, Dad." But I was. It was when I was up there by myself, and then Ty came up, and we tried to get him on that deer, and that deer never came back for Ty. And then I, the next week, bounced back with the last two weekends of season left, about seven days left or whatever, both weekends ahead of me. I got back on my big buck, and I said, all or none. I'm either I'm either going to kill him or not. He was back on my camera. He spent about a week totally nocturnal, and then the camera started showing him coming through a little more often, about every other day or every third day, closer to closer to daylight, but not daylight. 
So I just put my, all my chips in on him and said, it's either you or nobody, buddy. And plus a giant surprise buck shows up, which I don't ever usually expect where I hunt these deer because they kind of have their own hangouts. I did have a couple nice three-year-olds that lived in that area come by during the daylight, but no, I just ended up running out of time. And my big buck, the last day of the season was on camera. So I know he made the season. Mm -hmm. And then literally right after the season closed, the next day it starts snowing. And that area went from a foot of snow to probably two or three feet of snow within a week. Yeah. So what what happens when all that snow comes in with them? Usually when they get about two feet below, the bucks will migrate, will move down in elevation. And, you know, that has a lot to do with where we find their sheds. He was, he was probably in there for another full week after the season. And he, some of my big bucks in here that I could get to shed before Christmas or right after Christmas. Mm -hmm. So this was, close to Christmas. So there's a chance those antlers or sheds might be up high where I was hunting, but I have a feeling they're going to be a lot lower. I gotcha. Yeah. That's crazy. Like with the, the weather you guys get, and that's one of the differences I think with, you know, the Western mountain whitetails versus the Eastern mountain whitetails. I mean, we have, like, if you get a hard winter, you, I find a lot more sheds in the creek bottoms, um, than I do, than I do, you know, up on the ridges and everything, but like our elevation changes are a lot less severe is what you you're dealing with. You know, there's not like a really a migration. It's just them dropping 800 to, you know, to 1200 feet for us where, you know, with you, they can be dropping quite a bit more and they can hold different, just completely different places really. Yeah, these deer out here will drop from 5,000 feet or 4,500 right down to 1,500, 2,000 feet if they need to. That's crazy. <laughs> and and to, to get their bow, they've got to travel down the drainages to get closer to the rivers and lakes. Mm -hmm. So they'll travel a long ways to drop that elevation. Hmm. And then they'll, they'll go down and find warm sunny south faces and nestle in on them and shed and you know there's a lot of times our bucks will shed four or five miles away maybe even more from where they actually are huntable during the season yeah so before we before we dive into you know looking at sheds and some of the spring scouting things i want to go back to a point you brought up with that you know that buck that you were hunting and you know you said you had what you thought was his kind of core area, you know, kind of figured out. And what did that look like? And how did you kind of figure that out? Well, Bo, I have kept track of this buck since he was two and a half. And I've watched him grow up on some lower elevation scrapes. And I've watched him, I've watched his behavior change on my videos every year as he gets older. When he was two and a half, he was living in my scrapes and walking under us. When mm -hmm. he was three and a half, he was in my scrapes and walked under us a couple times, down lower in elevation. When he was four and a half, he started frequenting our elevation area where we were hunting a different buck, less. So I immediately, what's my thought? He's moved up. He's getting out of a little bit of the pressure. He's moved up higher in elevation. 
But because he kept showing up every year, even at a four and a half year old and a five and a half year old, it, the, the frequency decreased. So it, you know, it was for me, I, I know what he's doing. He's spending less time down where it's more, where he's more vulnerable to get hunted or killed because understand at four and a half and five and a half, he was a 155 and a 165 at five, you know, he, he was big. He was a deer that was actually better than the deer I killed last year, but I thought he had more potential to get to six and a half. And that's why we left him alone. I always felt like I knew right where he lived and where he was hiding out because I scout all the hunters in the area. I scout where I hunt. I keep track of where everybody hunts and travels in the public land. And I kind of had a really good idea where he was. So this year, you know, when we first started talking about whitetails, I had just went up this summer, this past summer, 2019 summer, and told my son, Ty, I'm going to go find Pretty Boy, and I think I know where he's at. And I freaking hit gold the first time. I went up, based on my maps, I went up higher in elevation. I had a spot picked out on a map where I thought he would live, where I could see that the thermals and the wind would just be unbelievable for him every day up there. Mm-hmm. Hard to get to. And guess who was the first deer on my camera, Bo, as soon as I put a camera out up there? It was him. It was him. And I have the I have the I have the evolution of that camera of every picture. And he was in there he was in there all the time. I literally I probably set up within I mean I went up in there and Bo, just to help the listeners, I got up in there and I found huge beds 250 300 pound buck beds spread i mean these big bucks will like i've talked to you about before they won't just lay in one bed every day Mm -hmm. i found multiple beds out on this flat bench off of a huge ridge long ridge multiple beds rubs as big as you know trees my thigh size I could see where he'd been camping out or what felt. I knew it was either him or another great big buck. And before I got my first trail camera picture, where I laid this, where I set this camera down and built a big scrape, he was there within two or three days in, in July. (laughs) And the sign was his. When I saw those rubs and scrapes or rubs and, and beds and a couple scrapes, I thought that's got to be him. I mean, he was pushing on trees and bending them over when he rubbed on them. He had trees bent over up in there, and it looked like a bedroom hideout area. So I literally moved right in real close to him. And I tried to pick a piece of the topography that I thought he might not bed on, but he would bed close just above me and come down through. And that's what the trail camera started showing, that he was bedded up on a steep hillside or he was bedded down below me, believe it or not, on the flat bench and coming up out of a, up a steep hillside, but he wasn't very far away. And he was daylight all the time through the summer. So I was pretty excited about finally hunting this deer at six years old. I don't do that a lot. A lot of times I get on a deer when he's five. This buck, I let him get to six because I thought he had that potential, and he did. He blew up from six or from five to six. He probably gained. He probably gained 25 to 28 inches. Jeez. You know, pushed him up around 180, gross typical. And he's just a five by five with one split brow. So he's a five by six, but 
This main frame's probably 172 to 175, just the main frame. Yeah. What what gets them to that size? Like, you know, with the, the food sources and everything else, That I feel like that's just, I don't know, maybe you see it differently, but I feel like that's a giant jump for a mountain buck. You know, I mean, Everything maybe you're seeing it more, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, This is what I see, Bo, and this is, would be the best way I can explain it. There are certain deer that I see level out at five years old and they don't ever get much bigger. But every now and then I see one that just blows up from two, three, four, five. Every year he makes a big jump. And every now and then I'll run across the buck like this that doesn't level out. And he was jumping 15 to 20 inches every year. Yeah. Now understand there's, there's some genetics up there where I'm hunting this deer bow. That's there's 200 inch whitetails in that country. Not many, but there are some genetics that carry that. And you know, let's be real. I'm hunting deer that can cross the Canadian border. Yeah. You know, I am hunting deer. If he wants to go for a really long walk, he could end up in Canada. Um, I'm hunting whitetails that, that live at such a high elevation and such harsh conditions that all of the weak, small, unfavorable genetics have been tossed away. They're not there. These deer, even the <laughs> does are much bigger bodied up there. The skeletons are bigger, Bo. They, they're these stars are, they're taller, longer, heavier deer. I believe it. <laughs> and what I've found. And what I, what I found with those high elevation bucks is that if you let them live to six, seven, and eight, I'm not joking. Those are their best years. Different than an agricultural deer. We have plenty of native protein in the, in the mountains all over. And there's a ton of vegetation, just native feed. Guys are supplemental feeding them too. You know, guys are, Guys are hunting with alfalfa. Guys are hunting with minerals. So, hey, these deer get fed well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big it, deer, Mo, uh, just, and, and just big genetics. Yeah. And I target those areas where there's great genetics. Do you, so to find those like areas with those great genetics, are you, are you just figuring it out through your scouting, your cameras? Is there anything else you're looking at to like say, all right, this area has big deer versus another that might have okay deer? Yeah, several several factors play into it. Number one, I got to see them on camera. You lay out a trap line of cameras in a brand new area and you find out what kind of genetics are running in it. Um, know what I'm looking for. Look at a lot of record books. Look at a lot of the, you know, VMUs and what kind of records come out of them. Yep. Look at the habitat, look at the feed. I mean, it's a combination of everything, mm-hmm. but elevation plays a big part in it, Bo. These high elevation bucks can't be weak and small and survive, or the does. They've, they've literally bred out, and the predators have taken out anything that's weak and not really, you know, anything that's not careful and too small bodied and can't handle that kind of harsh environment. Those genetics just aren't around. Yeah, and there, that's that's amazing. <laughs> that like that there's, there's they, not a go ahead. Go ahead, Bo. No, I was just gonna say no, that. Go ahead. I was just gonna say like the the fact that they 
you know, can live in those areas and, and the genetics with it. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was hunting up in Alberta and I know it's, it's different, but, uh, one thing Jim Hole had said to me, you know, was I was like, you know, Jim, like this, you got, you have a lot of coyotes that are on the property and like just all over the place running deer. And, you know, he was like, I like the coyotes. He goes, they make, he goes, they get rid of the weak deer. He's like, the only thing we have up here are tough deer. Like <laughs> for a lack of better terms, he's like that. He goes, I, you know, the, the deer that survive in these conditions in this extreme cold and the predators and everything else. And where you're at has, you know, even more predators than that. Like what you're getting is just a badass group of deer to, to, for a lack of better terms. You're correct. The deer that I'm hunting, there's not a ton of them, but they're badasses. Those big bucks are built like brick shit houses, and the does will stomp a coyote in the ground. I've watched them do it. <laughs> my, big, my, my big does will run a coyote right away from them, and they'll stand right up on their hind legs and stomp his ass if he gets close. I've seen them do it. Yeah. They're not worried about coyotes. They're worried about mountain lions and the wolves. Mm-hmm. What about grizz- yeah, grizzlies? We got grizzly bears. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I got grizzlies rolling through. I got grizzlies that'll roll through every now and then. It's getting worse. But the grizzlies tend to like to eat the moose and the elk a little more. They're a bigger meal. Mm-hmm. The, the wolves and the the wolves and the mountain lions are are the a whitetail's biggest nemesis. I mean, they're hard on them. But they also, like you said, you're you're literally culling out. It's almost like a uh, oh a Spartan type concept where only the super strong, best built, strongest bodies, uh, most intelligent or most wary, careful genes get get extended on and bred on through you know all the herd. Yeah. Yep. Another thing I see, Bo, is I see mule deer type bodies and I know some of our bucks, you know, over the last century or more have, I know that there's a little bit of crossing in some of these deer too, because our whitetails in that high country often have big shoulders and big hips like a mule deer buck does. That's interesting. Because I do have muleys right there with my whitetails everywhere I hunt in that high country. It's a, it's just a little bit, um, a little bit off topic, but do you ever get like, uh, a want to want to shoot one of those muleys or do you have an opportunity to, I guess? Pretty rare that I get the white tail or the muleys in when I'm hunting the whiteys because the whiteys are, the whiteys in my perception are way more dominant. And when the whiteys are around and I'm hunting these scrapes and there's a lot of white tails that frequent it, the muleys stay away from the white tails. Hmm. I feel like the whitetails run the muleys out and the muleys like 5,000 feet and up. Okay. I'm sitting on, I'm sitting on mountainsides that go up to seven, 8,000 feet in some places, or at least seven. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so a lot of times the muleys are even higher, Bo. Okay. That makes sense. And, and but like, they do dip down. Oh, it's crazy to me. Like you, you know, you have to, and, and I've heard you bring it up, you know, in the, the last podcast we did and, and by talking to you, you know, elevation is a big part of, you know, where you're at and everything, because 
it's it seems like you're keying in on certain elevations. Yeah, there's a zone where white there's a whitetail rich zone elevation that works because of the wind, because of the thermals, because of the structure of the mountains. It just really works well for them and because of the habitat that grows at those elevations, the right species of plants. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to live where they have everything they need. Yep. One thing that we don't lack out here is water. We always have water everywhere. So they always have water. There's no, there's no drainage that doesn't have water in it. Um, and the plants that they prefer the most, and huckleberries are one of them. It's funny, but my deer eat huckleberries like you wouldn't believe in the summer, just like a bear does. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's only summertime, but just the native viney plants that I always see the deer chewing away on and eating and the old man's beard off all of there's a certain timber species that produces old man's beard, which is Douglas fir. And yeah. they love those Douglas fir stands. <laughs> they eat the hell out of that. Yeah. And then I've got, then there's grass everywhere. There's grass, there's feed. Every logging road is full of, every logging road is a two, three, four, five, ten 10 mile food plot for deer because it's full of grass. Yep. So there you go. You know, it's just that it's just that combination that gives them everything they want and probably their best chance to survive. Yeah, that, that's what that's what I was. You know, when it comes down to like the the food sources and everything else, that's one thing that like there's such a big similarity between the Western Mountain Whiteys and the the Eastern Mountain ones because like we have you know a, a logging is a big part of. Um, you know, throughout the East Coast and the Appalachian Range over here, you know, especially in Pennsylvania. And those areas, to me, that have a lot of logging tend to have bigger deer. And I, I, you know, I talked to, I actually had a biologist on here that radio collars deer and everything, and he never, he didn't give me like a real straight answer on it because there wasn't strict uh, data that would back it up. But basically what came out of it was like, yeah, the, those logging cuts, you know, have, you know, they're, you know, stirring up the soil. You got the, the fresh, you know, food that's coming out of the ground. You got more sunlight coming through because the canopy isn't blocking all of it. It makes sense. You know, they're not, those deer have such a variety of food. And, and I always thought about it, you know, growing up that these deer were at such a disadvantage and didn't have the, cause they didn't have the crops and everything. And yeah, maybe that makes it harder for them, but they definitely aren't uh you know completely without food most of the time for sure the uh buck i that big buck i hunted this season and like i said put all my chips in on he was traveling and feeding in a old clear cut and he's he's in and out of it a lot and it's an old one it's been there a long time but still has great feed in it and the canopy is much more open in it and the vegetation is knee high to waist high in it all the time isn't it isn't it amazing though like i i feel like i can generalize clear cuts and by their age kind of determine how the deer will use them but then there's so many times that i'm just completely thrown off by it you know you'll get these ones that are 12 to 15 year old clear cuts that don't look like they're they don't have as much food coming up in them you know they're kind of an awkward size but you know deer still using them it's 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 really amazing one thing that I would share with all the listeners, and I don't, I don't know your Eastern clear cuts, mm-hmm. but I know the Western clear cuts out here. I tell people all the time, 
hunt those clear cuts, even if they're 40 or 50 years old. Every deer for decades has been trained by their mothers to eat there. Mm-hmm. And they, and there's food there still. Our, our clear cuts, even the older ones, Bo, they just have better cover. <laughs> our whitetail bucks love them because they don't get shot in rifle season <laughs> in the older ones. Yep. <laughs> it's too I thick mean, to try no to joke. put a bullet they, through there. <laughs> You can't see through those clear cuts with all the reprod, all the regrowth. Mm-hmm. So, so there's much smaller timber in them. There's no place to hang a tree stand. You got to hunt them off the ground or a ground blind in those cuts. The trees are, you know, 20, 30 feet tall, 40 feet tall at the tallest. Now, when I say 40, they're not very big around. You know, you might crawl in a 40 footer, 35 footer, I guess, if it's big enough around. But my point is, our deer have adapted out west to go where they're the safest. Mm-hmm. And those cuts still hold a lot of vegetation that may not be as pretty to the eye from the road when you drive by, but if you go in and walk them, which I do big time for sheds, um, find a lot of sheds in those nasty tangled up suckers. There, there's a lot of bucks that just lay up in those because, one, guys won't hang a tree stand in it. Two, they don't want to try to walk through them. Three, they can't see through them. And whitetails figure that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they oh they definitely do. They and you know th- th- those yeah those those clear cuts, like you said, it don't matter what the age is. Like they, they'll figure out a way of using them. And you know I I really did some research on it a little a little while ago because I remember growing up like my dad and my family was all about clear cuts. All I knew was hunting clear cuts. I didn't know why, but I just knew I was hunting clear cuts. <laughs> you know, that's I, what we did. That's <laughs> what we did as kids. <laughs> and it just it didn't you know it it didn't make sense to me at the time. Like, cause they all look so different. There were some that were newer that were you know even a couple years old that were starting to get some you know for us blackberry briars growing up and some different things. And then some of the older ones. Yeah, I remember when I first started getting into hunting out tree stands, like I couldn't find a tree to get into. There was no way because everything was right. too small in diameter, but it was so right. thick. Like you couldn't, you just, it was gnarly. And that's why those deer were living in it. And, and you know, we ended up having a lot of success hunting off the ground in in those scenarios. But man, is it's, it's, they're just such gold mines. They are. I grew up, I killed a lot of the, my early, my earlier year whitetails. I've shot several, not a ton, but several off the ground, even bow hunting. And it was always set up corner of a clear cut right next to the big timber where deer and elk were slipping in and out of the cut and a lot of cover. So I had to get right in there on the fire trail, you know, that a 10 foot fire trail, 15 foot fire trail and catch them crossing that fire trail, mm-hmm. stuff like that. <laughs> you know, the fire break trail in between the clear cut and yep. the, the, the big timber. Yep. Oh, I, I did can, that a lot when I was young. I can picture it in my head and just picturing those logging trails and the scrapes on them and everything else that, that go through it. it Absolutely. It's, it's crazy that, you know, we're, again, you know, over 2,000 miles apart. And some of the same things are, you know, going on. There's a lot of, you know, differences, but still, there's a lot of similarities between our whitetails from the east and, and you know, out there in the Rockies. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and then, you know, as far as the shed hunting goes and, and all the stuff that I'm doing right now is I'm getting in on all those areas that trying to go find ex- any type of evidence or any type of clue, hopefully pick up the sheds to the bucks I'm after. And if they were there, you know, if they didn't exit and leave five, six, seven miles away, and I'll go look in those areas too to try to find their antlers. But a lot of, a lot of what I'm doing right now is trying to cover ground that I'm going to hunt next fall just to pick up on every every subtle detail of how the deer are using that specific mountainside that cut that big timber adjacent to it uh you know i'm not putting it all together now because those trails still read like a buck as soon as the snow comes off for a Mm. while yeah yep yep no i i completely agree like so what what certain areas are you you know finding their you know their sheds and are you focusing on i know you were saying that like a lot of your big bucks and everything lose them you know around christmas time or before you know is that typically areas that you're you know double duty in by scouting for hunting next year or you know you're specifically focused on their sheds or how how does that look like for you i like to go into an area where i plan on hunting a buck the following season right now as soon as i can get into it as soon as that snow's you know, down to two inches, three inches or less, you know, even five or six inches is okay, but I'll be honest, you're not going to see as many sheds in six, seven, eight inches of snow. Um, but anyway, all that, I jump in there right now and I am double duty in it. I am after any shed I can find that dropped early before he got pushed out by the snow. And I'd keep very close track of all my areas and how much snow was there at a certain time of the year. Pretty much, if I if I don't have 18 inches of snow or more by January 15th, there's a good chance I'm finding my bigger deers, my bigger deer, excuse me, their antlers. I'm going to find their antlers right there, right where I hunted them. If I get huge snowstorms and it pushes them hard and I get a ton of accumulation on the ground before January 15th, then it's a crapshoot on where they were. And then I go way down in elevation and I pick out all the big southern slopes and big heavy pine tree, uh, great big trees that cover, you know, there'll be a 20-foot circle underneath them with no snow. Um, I'll go and really hit those areas hard bow to try to find their sheds. I like I love finding their sheds, but it's more important for me personally to get up and do that double duty, especially when I don't have big heavy snowstorms until after the 15th of January. Most of my mature older bucks always shed by the 15th of January. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's super interesting that you can, you know, kind of pin down when some of those bucks are, are losing their antlers. I mean, we, I, I don't know if it's just in you know this part of the country or not, but we have such a weird fluctuation. Like I've had photos last year of a buck that shed at the end of November and, you know, a couple during December and some of the, the biggest ones that you know my family have found have been around the christmas time frame but then you'll get some that are holding on to them all the way you know into early april and it's so weird to me that um you know the difference is there and i've, I've talked to people that are deer biologists about it and and everything and i and i get it but at the same time it still just doesn't 100 percent make sense to me <laughs> 
You know, and I think that's fair. I have a theory based on biology that, that I, that just from my experience, my thousands of photos watching really mature boxes, that testosterone level is at an extreme height out here. My maturest bucks travel unbelievable amounts of miles to cover the rut because we are, the deer are spread way out. We don't have a lot of does. We have about a, you know, maybe two to one doe to buck. So not many more does than bucks. Uh, the bucks in the mountains cover so much ground. They wear themselves out. I literally can watch 30 pounds melt off some of my big deer. That big deer I was hunting this year for two weeks, I was picking him up on other cameras two and three miles away. Mm-hmm. And I watched him go from about 260 or 70 pounds down to about 220 in about two and a half weeks. And this is no joke. As soon as that rut slowed down and December hit, and he started slowing down and coming back to his hideout where I had him, even with the wolves around, he started packing on some weight and looked really good by the end of the season where he probably put on 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. But my point is he got so run down and, and he worked so hard everywhere. I was picking him up everywhere else. He was covering does. He was moving in and taking over and breeding my does. I have, uh, I have a quite a few videos this year of him at other places. As soon as the doe comes in, he's there one mile away, two miles away, two and a half miles away. He shows up. So he's checking all those community scrapes. He's coming in and being the man. He's breeding the does, kicking off the young bucks. And I'm tickled to death because he's doing so much breeding, but he also, wasn't around much for a couple of weeks in the middle of November, you know, to the end of November. He ran himself down. He lost all that weight. He put some back on. Those big bucks wear themselves out so hard in this big country out here. They almost always shed first. And I think a lot of it has to do with how wore out they are. Their testosterone drops down after the rut. And they seem to just try to rest is what I has been my experience. Yeah. And most of my oldest, most of my oldest, biggest breeders always shed first. My younger bucks that don't work that hard in the rut, that don't quite know what's up yet, they really don't get to be a player in the rut that much. They tend to pack into January a little longer. Mm-hmm. But when we get hard gas conditions and the testosterone's dropped off, and we get a really cold, harsh storm for three or four days, a lot of bucks will drop too. So. I think it's conditional. I think it's being stressed and wore out, and I think it's testosterone levels, all three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that 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 makes you know that makes definitely a lot of sense. And so when when you're when you're going out here, you know, at this time as you're itching to get out, currently as we're recording this podcast, what is your main focus? Is it, is it to find sheds? Is it to scout areas that are potential hunting areas what are you looking for out of the the spring scouting uh i would put it at 50 50 i'm a shedaholic i love finding antlers <laughs> so the way i approach the way i approach finding antlers is a serious bust your ass process where i grid an entire mountain in a day with my shed dog and my son or my shed dog and myself I will literally run 20 yard lines for miles at a time back and forth. But what's great about that 
is you don't miss anything scouting when you cover 20 yard lines for miles. Mm-hmm. I will literally walk one or two miles to 20, you know, and then drop down 20 yards, if you will, and rock all the way back one or two miles, drop down 20 yards, go all the way back. If that, if that paints the right kind of picture. Mm-hmm. So like a typewriter, like a typewriter, working your way up a paper, down a paper, you know, back and forth, back and forth. I'm covering a ton of ground. I'm keeping very close track of my, of, of, uh, different trees and different, just any type of big rock bluff or anything. And boy, when I come back through, I see it. I stay, we, Ty and I talk about it all the time. We're out there. Stay on your line, stay on your line. You know, we're getting off our line a little bit, meaning we just trained our brain to see our path and come back through and notice specific, uh, different attributes of the forest that pinpoint where we're at. And we could put it on a GPS and try to follow the GPS. And we've done that a little bit, but we've gotten really good at just doing it with our eyes. And then we'll run the GPS and look at it at the end of the day. And our grid lines are almost perfect. 20 yards, yeah. 20 yards apart, you know, you know, for 10 hours, 15 hours. What do I find along the way there, Bo? I find a lot of sheds doing it that way. And we don't miss many especially when my son's with me, he's incredible. He's got great eyes. He's great. He works great together with me as a partner. We pretty much have each other in a visual the whole time. We're 20 yards apart. And then our shed dog works out in front of us, crossing our path, crossing both of us the whole time. Mm -hmm. So we're just sweeping. We're sweeping. Um, We like to, we like to side hill a lot versus going up and down and missing a bunch of stuff. We literally get on a map and, Point A is here and point B is a mile or two away. And that's the, that's the destination we go back and forth to all day long and just keep gritting. And we pick up, oh man, you find everything. You find deadheads, you find skeletons, you find tree stands, you find trail cameras. (laughs) You learn everything about that chunk of woods and you find sheds and you also see all the trails. You find new scrapes, new rubs. Anytime we get into a hot looking area that we've never walked across before we'll stop and literally do big circles and break it all down for for scouting purpose not just shed hunting yeah and then we'll move on and then we're logging all that anytime i find a community scrape boom that community scrape goes into the the mental computer obviously and i i will tag all of those on my on my map to make sure i can walk right back to it which i really don't need to tag it but there, there might come a day where I need that map to get me back there. But I've done it for long, though. I've been, I've been shed hunting since I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, seven or eight years old, shed hunting with my dad, learning how to do it, how he did it. I've just tried to take it to a different level to where we don't miss anything. You, you know, and it's funny. Like, I feel like I've gotten worse at shed hunting. And <laughs> I say that because, like, so the way my dad's taught me to do it and I, I look up to him from his uh, shed hunting abilities and stuff, but like he's the way he goes about it is he'll move until he finds hot sign. Then he grids and he'll go back and forth, back and forth and cover every little square inch of the area. And, you know, and that's why he brings in, you know, 70 to 90 sheds a, a year. And then I'm bringing in, you know, 10 to 15 and it's, and because a lot of the stuff when I'm doing it is I get distracted and I'm like, oh, I want to see what's over here. And I'm just moving it. And it really comes down to a lot of the, 
and it sounds like from what you're saying and what he tells me and, you know, some of the others that are successful is that it's the discipline of doing that and covering that ground back and forth, back and forth. When you find the hot areas yeah. and places that they, you know, might be yeah. hanging out in a little bit more. Yeah. And it is, it's about discipline and sticking to your plan. That game plan, like your dad's doing, yeah. doing exactly what I do. I just might be doing it in a bigger area. I'm mm-hmm. not sure, but yeah, anytime, anytime we go out to shed hunt, my son loves it. He likes picking up antlers. It's fun. It's, you know, you go all season to get one shot at a giant buck, but when you shed hunt, you get instant gratification throughout <laughs> the day. It's fun. It is. <laughs> you know, it pays you back. It's a great time. My my boy and I have had so much fun together. He's He was a little shit when I first started him five years old. Just a little animal and just has an eye for it. Now Ty's 16 and, you know, towers over me and can outwalk me, walk me into the <laughs> ground and, you know, he's probably going to be a college football player. He's that kind of guy, you know, he's that kind of kid and athlete. And he just lights up his eyes light up when he knows we get, a, when we're going to start shed hunting. Like he, he literally loves, I think he loves shed hunting as much as I do, but Bo, boy, have we found the bucks and those community scrapes and everything else because of shed hunting. Mm-hmm. It's really helped us. I think I have 15 bucks or more downstairs that we at least have one shed to. <laughs> oh, that's it's such a good feeling too. Like in, and like with the areas that you're hunting and I'm hunting and a lot of listeners are hunting, it's different. It's not, you know, the areas you're hunting and these deer getting older in are areas that everybody has an equal opportunity to hunt them just like you are. And, you know, it's, Any, it's not easy. Exactly. It's everything we're doing and all the bucks we're hunting are, I mean, they're, they're big public land, mountain whitetails that anybody can go try to find. It's not easy. I mean, for everybody to do it successfully, you definitely have to put your work in. Um, finding their sheds sometimes too, in this giant country is ridiculous when you find them, when you get it, when you, when you, you know, when you piece together a, 10 mile circle area of a drainage and you find a guy's sheds in it and he might be on your camera December 15th packing his rack and you might find his shed 2000 feet lower, eight or 10 miles away. That's an exhilarating feeling when you figure that out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's wicked. It's, it's a little different than going out in the back pasture or, uh, going out on the private, you know, out on your farm and picking them up in the cut corn or the timber <laughs> off the farm every year. It, it's just different. I've done that. I've, I've enjoyed that. I've had a blast doing that. You know, I've hunted shed hunted all over Saskatchewan. I've shed hunted North Dakota. I've got a shed hunt in Iowa, Oklahoma. Um, there's some places that I've shed hunted that were really difficult in the, the Oklahoma was tough. It was a thick ass, nasty, really nasty, thick country that you just had to push through. That was a tough place, but every other place I've ever shed hunted, I pretty much picked up all my sheds right off food sources. And it was fun. It was, it was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I only had to walk two miles today and I picked up 15 sheds when a lot of times Ty and I'll put in eight to 12 miles a day. And if we have a good day, we're picking up over 10. Yeah. Do you, when you, when you're out, you know, looking and stuff and do you notice like the way the winter is affecting them a lot? Like I know with 
with this year for us having a pretty mild winter, you know, it's kind of like the sheds could be a free for all. Like they could be anywhere. They weren't pushed in any direction. They didn't have any, you know, real bad weather for extended period of time that they were, you know, bedding in, you know, some thermal cover. And it's just, it's, uh, it, to me, it's so it's so difficult, you know, because you have to look at it from the weather standpoint and and you know everything else to kind of get yourself an idea or at least be you know open minded when it comes to this stuff. Yes, if there are not conditions to concentrate whitetail bucks, they're going to be scattered. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about a year where they're probably scattered where you're at. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I have. Yeah, I had some conditions mid-January, early January, excuse me, to mid-January that might have concentrated them for me. My issue is, or my obstacle, not issue, but my obstacle is the fact that they might have concentrated my bucks five miles away because they had to move downhill to get out of the snow. My my favorite conditions are when, to find my biggest whitetail sheds and I only keep my giant buck sheds. Uh, good years, Ty and I will find 200, 250. Poor year, we'll find 100. Um, we've done that a lot. Uh, growing up as a kid, all the way into my 20s and 30s, I was finding 100 a year usually by myself. Jeez. All those years. Uh, <laughs> the worst year I've ever had, Bo, ever when I didn't have much time was probably 50. So we're always going to find at least 50 sheds a year minimum. And a lot of times we're 200. So... You know, just do the math. That's a lie. <laughs> but my, but Bo, my favorite, my favorite years are when my big whitetails don't get pushed by snow, and I can go find them personally. Versus having a ton of deer pushed by snow into a honey hole. A lot of guys would rather have the other option of all the deer get pushed early and congregated, so when they find the right spot, they pick up ten or. 20 sheds in a honey hole. Mm-hmm. I would rather other guys not find my bucks 10 miles or five miles away. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I find them way up in a hideout where nobody is. Yep. <laughs> and if, if, if you get where I'm, if you get where I'm going with that, I would much rather go up. I hope that I go up and find my big typical within two, 300 yards of where I hunted him this year, but it's going to be close because of what the snow did right when he could have been shedding or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. And that's, I mean, I guess that's why there are animals that can adapt so well and, and, you know, live in such extreme conditions, you know, from everywhere, you know, it's, it's, it's truly amazing. Yeah, they do. And, you know, then you factor in the predators, where do the predators push them when you're not up there? How many wolves and mountain lions got into your spot after you left <laughs> did they run your deer down into the bottoms where they're safe? I mean, there's, there's just so many factors. So what do we try to do out West? We try to cover it all. Yeah. We try to hit all of our, we try to hit all of our big deer areas first and make sure they didn't shed real close to where they like to hide out, you know, six, seven months out of the year. And then, then we go hit the, we obviously, or also we, based on what we can get into because of the snowpack on the ground in our roads, a lot of what we're hitting right now is lower elevation stuff that, well, when we're in there, we hope to God they came that far. You know what I mean? Yeah. We hope that they showed up down in there and we hope we're the, and it's public land. So we hope we're the first ones in. 
Mm-hmm. That's a big game. I, I already got beat into one spot this year. You know, Tyson was bummed. He was like, Dad, somebody already beat us in there? And I said, yep. And last year, Ty and I went in there in half a day and picked up, I think, 10. Mm-hmm. And I went in there the other day, and there were foot tracks everywhere. A guy had beat me in by a day or two. Huh. I still found I still found three sheds though where he missed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's cool because you know, like my, my year dog. after year, you know, yeah, <laughs> when uh, you know when uh, dog found the something. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but year after year, you know, depending on the winners and everything, but like a lot of times those bucks will shed in the same places, and and what we've learned is there was a specific buck that. You know, I I wasn't one of the original ones that started hunting them. Um, some other family members were, and they found like three years worth of sheds off them in the same area, but never could figure them out, you know, during the season. He wasn't hanging around there. And then they kind of backed off, and I started hunting a similar area and ended up finding the sheds in the same area. So anyways, there was like six years worth of sheds all in like a 300-yard circle. But that deer yep, didn't didn't spend any other time of the year in that spot. It was so amazing. Like he was, there was some private property. I think he was spending some time on, like mi- like miles away. It was all just big timber, big ridges st- type stuff. But this deer, I'm about ninety five percent sure, ultimately died of old age. You know, we found his sheds, and then another guy I ran into said they found a body of a deer with, you know, giant bases that was dead that had already shed, but. Yep, and that is a excellent point you're making. I have areas where I pick up the same bucks year after year after year just like that, but I find them four, five, six miles away in the mountains when I'm trying to hunt them. <laughs> You get on a map, though. Yeah, when you get on a map, though, and look at it, it all makes sense where they're traveling. They're they're just they're making their way down great big long ridge lines and getting down an elevation out here. And they have their little winter spots that they love. They have summer spots that they love. Um, I have bucks that are real happy summer and into fall, like the buck I hunted this year. And it's because he's never been bothered there in his life. I'm the first guy I know to hunt him where I hunted him this year, based on the way he behaved up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And nobody hunted. I, I, you know, I scout all the other hunters. I keep track of every track in the snow. Um, I was easily probably 500 to a thousand feet above anybody where he was hanging out. And the reason he, hangs out up there is he's lived for six and a half years of his life. And I, I truly believe I'm the first guy that hunted him that close to where he likes to hang out. So is 2020 the year then or what? <laughs> you know, 2020, should, Bo, 2020 should be the year. Uh, you know, one thing I want to share with all the listeners is this game of mountain whitetail hunting. I don't even remotely get discouraged the first year I go to hunt a specific deer and I only hunt specific deer that I'm targeting. I haven't killed a surprise deer in, in almost two decades. So I'm really, I know my deer very well because of all the research, trail cameras, everything I've got running, keep track of them as they grow up. But these specific deer 2020, sometimes it's going to, yeah, 
I hunted him this year for the first time and put some serious work in on him. Thought I was going to get him killed. Had some obstacles get in the way, the wolf pack, all that stuff. 2020 should be great because he showed me a big chink in his armor when it comes to early season velvet movement that I had been, I literally in the early season because of my job. And when the, every year, my starting day of my teaching fluctuates based on labor day, mm-hmm. this next season, Bo, I'm going to get a hunt this deer for six or seven days of the early season that I didn't get to last year because of the calendar. I was just going to say labor day is a little bit later this coming year, isn't it? It's huge for me. It is a huge advantage for me. I knew this as soon as I got all of the pictures of him in that early season. When I start teaching, you, you don't get to take days off the first couple of weeks of teaching. You mm-hmm. just don't do it. You know, it's kind of a no-no in our district, and I get it. It's our first two weeks of school. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting all these, I'm going through all these pictures the first chance I get up to go hunt him on a weekend, and I'm like, holy cow, this guy doesn't even know He's never been hunted in the first week of his velvet. He carried his velvet till the 11th of September of September, which is, <sighs> which is really late for this country. Yeah. And he was, he was nonchalantly hanging out in the daylight almost every day on this flat bench that I set up on him, but I couldn't hunt him till the middle of September when I had a weekend. Mm-hmm. So I had all of this info right away. And I'm like, dude, I'm just literally thinking in my mind, if I don't get you killed this year, for whatever reason, this is what I was thinking back in September, you're going to be in trouble early September next year if you keep doing what you're doing this year as a Mm six-year-old. And then I look at the calendar, I already knew the calendar, and I'm like, this guy's going to, I'm going to get a shot at him for five or six days in a row if he, a lot of those old bucks, Bo, too, will do the same thing if they've never been bothered on their summer pattern, they will do the same thing every year that first week of September. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I have a great chance of killing him in September, but he's probably going to be in the velvet and that's fine with me. I, I, I don't discriminate there. What, what are your food sources looking like that time of year for like this buck specifically? Is he, um, is it still just big timber type stuff or, and looking at clear cuts or what are you looking at? That big timber that I'm hunting him in is really close to a clear cut that I know he likes to feed in. Mm-hmm. The big timber also has a ton of feed in the big timber. That's the thing about our topography up here is we have big timber with brush everywhere in it. Mm-hmm. I've got videos of him just eating eating all around my tree stand even into November because the brush hangs on so long. <laughs> there's feed everywhere i know i was just gonna feed it's not amazing like it's so funny like talking to you know people hunt farm country and everything else it's it's so hard to understand the type of places we hunt and the the ways for it like it's there's not you know distinguished um you know bedding and feed areas i mean there's some areas that you can you know tell better than others but man is that difficult it's not not a very clear line on any of that whatsoever. There's no, there's no destination food source. There's food everywhere. Yeah. That, that changes the whole game in whitetail hunting mm-hmm. destination feed, 
So, you know, conversely, why do I hunt the hell out of scrapes and licking branches early season? Because my big deer will come and check a licking branch in the velvet, and he does. Mm-hmm. And he's not, you know, he's not pawing in the dirt. He's not urinating in the in the dirt yet, but he wants to know every deer that's touching that licking branch, and that's what he's doing early season for me. He's checking a scrape. All he's doing is checking the licking branch, and he's feeding around and feeling comfortable in there. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what he does. And, and the state I'm hunting him in, is, it's this buck's actually over in Washington. I can put feed out if I want, but you do it in the early season in this country, and you'll have every bear in the country on top of you. So for me, it's about getting him to just come in, check that licking branch, uh, address it, want to check it. I've got quite a few bucks hitting it now. I've built a really nice scrape in there, and he was covering my licking branch more than any deer. Obviously, he did it a lot at night, but still, he was he checked it more than any deer the whole season. Mm-hmm. And early season, Bo, when he was in the velvet, he did not care at all. He still walked through it and checked it. He wanted to sniff and know what every buck in there, whoever was licking on it. He's the king of that hill. He's doing all the breeding. I got the evidence this year of him doing all the breeding everywhere. Yeah, he definitely was, and then he's he's out there, you know, just being just extremely dominant. And, and with, with those areas that you're, that you're in, do you see a lot of fighting, um, within those bucks? Well, yeah. You know, Bo, I can't hardly get a buck through a season without breaking a time. That's that's what I, I, I kind of figured that with the, the way the deer densities are and everything else, but, uh, I wasn't sure if it was similar or not. Well, here's what's funny. <laughs> You're going to laugh at this. Every buck that's on that scrape with him this season, other than the little babies that won't mess with him, their racks are beat to hell and broke up except for his. So what's that tell you? He's kicking some ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got video of him and a three and a half year old on video for three or four straight videos in a row of 30 seconds where a young guy tries to move in and spar with him a little bit. And as soon as he starts to get a little bit pissed on the video, that young buck gets thrown around like a rag doll and gone. And it's just, real, and, and Bo, it's just real quick. It's not like knockdown drag out. He just kind of pushes real hard once mm-hmm. and twists his neck and boom, that's it. That young buck's like, Oh, I've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and these two guys hung out a little bit in the summer together. Not a lot, but they were tolerant of each other even in the summer. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. You know, that's just one buck. We've got a lot of other bucks we're monitoring. We're running around and checking other cameras and keeping track and making sure a giant doesn't show up. And understand, I'm not just, I, I'm keeping track of a lot of deer, but when I had time to hunt, I I went all in on this deer this year and you know, I'm going to go all in on him next season too, uh, as long as he's around. And if he's not around, I'll move on to the next guy that I find, or maybe I uncover a new guy. You know, that's just, that's how I roll. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so cool. And it's, it's, yeah, it's part of the game. I mean, and the, you know, the fact that you're able to, you know, let go and that deer ends up dying, whether by from another hunter or whatever the reason, then just 
keep moving on and find that next challenge. That's that's super cool. You know, I I was at a point for a couple of years where I tried the targeting a specific buck, and I'm just not at that point of experience level to be able to consider myself doing that yet. I'm sure you know as as a evolution of a bow hunter and mountain whitetail hunter as that goes, I'll I'll get to that point. But uh, that's it's just it's super interesting to me that that you can do that because a lot of people. And I'm sure you hear it too, but just think that's impossible to target a specific deer in the mountains and be able to, you know, successfully, you know, have opportunities at them. Yeah. And I can understand why they would think that way. It takes an unbelievable resilience, dedication, discipline, and you got to enjoy that. I enjoy it. I also I also try to have a plan B buck that is a superstar too. You know, I tr- this was one of the first years, Bo, where I just went all in because this is a rare deer. This is a net Boone and Crockett typical probably. Yeah. You know, I don't run across many net Boone and Crockett pick a typical and he's close. He maybe he isn't, you know, if he didn't have that sticker, I know he would be, but I honestly think he's going to be better than what people think when I get him on the ground because I know how big his body is. Nets I know fishes. what I'm looking at. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and, and I'm a gross guy. Yeah. I'm a gross guy. I understand that. But how, how rare is a net clean typical in this country that's old? It's really yeah. rare because most of our big deer grow a lot of junk. They get trash on them. They get a bunch of trash. This deer has stayed clean minus one split brow he's he's gonna lose three or four inches there net is for fish i get that i agree 100 <laughs> on that i know i just had to throw it in but there this year, but this, this year might have the best frame the best g2s g3s and heaviest main beams i've ever seen on a five by five i mean he is a freaking tank uh i can and i also that. like a like I referred to, I know how big his skeleton is, how big his body is. He's the kind of deer where if I kill him, he'll be bigger on the ground. Mm -hmm. He's that kind of deer. You know, he'll be bigger once he's on the ground. You walk up to him and be like, geez, yeah, he's big everywhere. He's heavy and he's got six inch bases or better. Yeah. No ground shrinkage for that guy. (laughs) No. And and he, you know, he's, he's he's that kind of deer. Uh, He's also, deer I've known since he was little and and he's smart as hell. And he showed me that this year. Like I literally would sit in my stand and look through my cameras and think you smart old son of a bitch. You totally, you totally got this game figured out, or at least he thinks he does. But again, he's going to be in trouble early season next year. If he's still alive, because he's he's pretty nonchalant the first week of season where he was last year. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm and I'm gonna have Plan B, C, D, you know, A, B, C, D, E, and F too in place. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's that's the thing that I love. That's the thing that I love about this is you talked about targeting a specific buck and not quite there yet. I started getting there in the early 2000s. Once I started doing it, like I said, from 2003 on, I have not killed a buck that wasn't targeted. So from 2003 to right now, 17 years. I've only killed targeted bucks every year. Um, I've had two years now in 17 years that I didn't kill. This was one of them. And some years I kill two. 
next year, I'm going to kill two or three is my goal because I hate it when I miss a year. So I got to make up for it. You know, that's just my mentality. And that's not anybody's pushing themselves other than me wanting to challenge me. You know, if you're, if you're not going to get one killed, I tell myself this, then you better, you better damn sure the next year really bust your tail and let's go get two. And, and that's just how I think personally, yep. that's not for everybody, but I enjoy that challenge. Like I truly, and I'm going to work my tail off. It's so motivating to me. I'm going to try to knock down two great big ones next year. And for me personally, I'm going to feel a little bit better about this last season. If I don't and I get one, I'm going to be extremely happy. And there's no telling with a mountain buck, you know, they might yep. kick my ass again next year, but, but it's not going to derail me ever. Mm -hmm. You start stepping up into that higher age class and very rare deer. You have to be realistic about it too. No, that's, that's a good point. And like, you know, just not letting it, you know, derail you and get you, you know, beat down in any sort of way it's you know you got to have the mindset for it and and being able to keep coming back year after year i mean hunting mountain whitetails is like i you know i've tried to explain it to people and you know depending don't matter if you're in the rocky mountains you're in the appalachian mountains whatever don't matter it's it's difficult from a mental standpoint yeah it's difficult from a physical standpoint but it comes down to the mental side of it and you know trusting where you're setting up and you know trying to you're second guessing yourself and with low deer density it's not you're not getting that um you're not getting that instant feedback that you would for from other places you know you have to be extremely extremely resilient and not ever buy into the you know the just the you, you can never get depressed about it you get you have to be honest with what you're tackling first of all what you're what you're getting into you know people ask me all the time is this something for me well it's not for everybody but i'll tell you what i'll tell you what if you can work through that and never get down and work your way out of even the lows and just stay strong mentally you'll learn so much more if you stick with it you learn so much more about yourself. You push yourself to places you never thought you could. And then when you start being successful because of that mindset, then you realize my biggest weakness ever was probably the fact that I allowed some of this stuff to get to me. You know, and I learned that along the way at a young age when I was, I mean, how old are you, Bo? I'm 27. Yeah. When I was 27, <laughs> that's what I was learning. When I was 27... I was learning that this is a bitch and this is not easy. And the last thing I'm ever going to do is fail. You know, I'm, I'm not going to fail. I'm going to figure this out because here's the bottom line. They exist out there. They are out there. I'm allowed to hunt them. You better get your stuff figured out and really understand these deer. And you better put all the time and scouting in to really understand them so that you don't waste season after season just hoping that you're going to kill a big buck based on luck. It's not going to happen in this country. Yeah. It's just not. Not consistently. You might, you might get, yeah, you might get lucky once every decade, you know, and that's not what I ever wanted. Even at your age, my goal was to consistently kill back in those days, four and a half year old bucks and older. When yeah. I hit about the early two thousands, when I hit 2003, four and five and knocked down some giants, I was like, well, hey, 
now I got to step it up and start hunting five-year-olds. I got real serious about five-year-olds and older after 2010. Like I was like, that's it. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. And that's, that's all I've hunted since, you know, 2009 or 10. But in the early 2000s, I was knocking down the seven-year-olds, the eight-year-olds, the six-year-olds. And then I just made a choice. I said, I am done shooting these unbelievable four-and-a-half-year-olds because, one, I enjoy just watching a four-and-a-half-year-old buck when he has no idea that I'm literally right there and he is lucky that I'm the one sitting in that stand and not somebody else. I love that feeling. It's like, dude, you are, you have no idea how close you are to death. <laughs> you're lucky. It's an old sport like me that that's doing what I'm doing. And you're lucky. My son's not with me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, get, I get, a I get a kick out of that, but I also teach, you know, on the other aspect of that Tyson's 16, he, he's, his, he has set his bar at four and a half and he has learned at a young age growing up doing this with me that it's okay and it doesn't really matter what your age is it's all about your mentality i see it play over into his football he's an unbelievable student um he's confident but he's quiet and humble but he's super confident i see the whitetail hunting that he's learned at such a young age sitting in a tree stand with me since he was eight years old filming for me for whitetail addictions i've seen that kid learn stuff about himself and how to push himself and how to, you know, hold out as he got older. He killed his first year was two and a half. And then he started holding out for three and a half. And he killed a couple of those. And then he shot a 165 inch, five and a half year old boy. He was hooked. He's yeah. like, dad, I'm cool. He's like, dad, I'm 13. I just killed the 165 on public land. He said, you know what? I love these big bucks, these older bucks. I get what you're saying now, dad. He goes, I'm bumping it up to four and a half now, you know? <laughs> and he passed. Bo, just so you know, Ty passed up 15 bucks this year. Are you serious? He passed up 15 five by fives and bigger. God. He decided to target. He decided to target as a 16 year old, one or two bucks. And that was it. And he never did get a crack at the one he really wanted to hunt. He also had very limited time because his football team that he starts both way on biggest schools in the state of Idaho Ty went to the state championship in football this year as a two-way starter as a junior. Uh, he's a really young junior, but he didn't even get a hunt hunt for bucks until, until Thanksgiving because of football season. And he still passed up 15 bucks through the year in the late season. That's impressive. <laughs> he had a beautiful, on the very last day, a beautiful five-by-five, three-and-a-half-year-old under him for 30 minutes at five yards. On the very last day, and he just texted me after he got out of the mountains and texted me. And he was another thing he's doing now too, is he's got his driver's license he's hunting on his own, hunting some stands that maybe I'm not at. And he texted me and he said, yeah, dad, that really nice five by five came in. He goes, dad, once I seen him and saw that he was for sure three and a half, he goes, you know what? I just enjoyed watching him. I couldn't shoot him. I didn't even want to, but he goes next year he's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a good point. You know, that he, he's enjoying it. You know, he's been able to see it and he's like, yeah, I don't need to, I don't need to, you know, kill it to be, to to make it a, you know, good hunt there. I'm, you know, he's got a standard set and he's obviously, uh, you know, led by, you know, yourself and, you know, his own experience and drive for it. That's, that's pretty incredible. I've tried to teach my boys not to let society put demands on them. 
Oh, you, oh, you didn't kill your buck this year, Ty. What's wrong with you? I've taught my boys. That's just society. That's just culture. Yeah. You know, do, do you really want to go kill a wild animal just because you want to post a picture mm-hmm. or to say you got one killed? I've really tried to teach my kids. You're taking that animal's life. You're going to eat that animal. Do you really just kill it to post a picture on Instagram or Facebook? Or are you shooting that buck because that's something you worked hard for? You feel like he's at a, at a respectable age that you're happy with. And don't get me wrong, Bo, as long as they're happy with it, that's what I tell them. So you better not ever come home and say to me, oh, shit, Dad, I wish I wouldn't have shot him. He's a year too young. Yeah. You know, you kill what makes you happy. My oldest boy, eight, 18, Jess, he doesn't hunt like Ty and I do. He shot a beautiful three-and-a-half-year-old five-by-five this year. Guess what? He was tickled to death. That's what I care about. Yeah. No, you know, that's, you know, that's such a good, that's such a good he, point. He was, he was so happy. And I said, son, that's what it's about. You are truly happy with your hunt. You called that buck in by yourself. You didn't have your old man with you. You didn't have your brother with you. And you went out and did it all by yourself, called him in, shot him at 20 yards, 30 yards, whatever it was. Three and a half year old, who cares? Because you're happy. So I hope that when I talk about this, the point I'm making is, is go out and, you know, these mountain bucks, especially guys will ask me, well, how do I, how do I kill these great big bucks? Like you do, Troy? Well, don't go out and bite off more than you can chew early and get disappointed. (laughs) Earn it. Learn it, learn it, earn it, work your way up, get it figured out, and then be comfortable with not shooting a buck some years. Like this year for me, I put my tag in my pocket when it was extremely happy. I left other deer alone that were beautiful whitetails that I get to hunt next year. I came home to Idaho and found me a nice big doe and put her in the freezer with my Idaho tag and was happy. And I still got my deer meat, you know, and Ty did the same thing. Um, we, we do that a lot out here. We, we like to harvest plentiful does if we don't harvest our buck that we're after. Mm-hmm. And we feel good about that too. Yeah. And, and one thing you said earlier too, is like, you know, you're talking about when you're at my age and learning and, you know, I, I'm at the point where I just spend as much time as I possibly can in the woods to learn. Like I I've, I feel like I've spent a lot more time than most have, you know, at, at my age and have had a, you know, a little bit less of a learning curve, just learning from my family and, you know, everyone's been successful in that realm. You know, I'm super thankful for that, but like I need maybe, you know, when I get to a certain age, I don't need to spend as much time scouting and I could just learn and know. But for me now, I'm not at that point. I need to put as much time in the woods as I possibly can and just learning and making mistakes and figuring it out and trying to, you know, do everything possible. And that's, you know, that's what my focus is now is trying to learn and do all those things, you know, it, you know, at a point where I'm older and, you know, have a family and some other different commitments that I can, you know, maybe don't need to put as much time into that, that preseason stuff. I, I think it's going to be tough either way, but, uh, uh, just being able to learn as much now as I possibly can. You have the perfect mindset at 27. You, that's what you need to be doing. And be, you know, be open with yourself about it. You know, obviously your old man's a hell of a hunter. Mm -hmm. He didn't get there not putting that time in. He put that time in. 
he knows things and fills stuff in the woods and senses stuff just based on the moisture in the air and little just stuff that you probably don't even get yet, but you'll yep. get there. Yep. And I talked to, I talked to Pi about that a lot, that there's so much that we forget about as humans with our instincts. Your instincts get developed and built based on your experience. So the more time you guys put in, all you young guys, you know, you're 27, my son's 16. Obviously, he had a quick learning curve with me because I drug him everywhere, but he still realizes that he's still learning. But I'll tell you what, he's sharp, and he he pays attention to every detail I've ever taught him. Plus, he thinks for himself. You know, I always tell my boys, write your own book. Yeah, just write your own book. Um, you got to put that work in. He gets it too with sports. You you don't end up where he's at on a high level high school football team in the state. You know, as big as they get in our state, and you don't end up playing both ways unless you put that time in. And have that mental toughness of who's this guy? Like, who's this guy that's emerging? Oh my God. Well, who's this guy putting all this time? Oh, but this guy's making plays. Well, it's the same way in the whitetail woods. You put all that work in all that smart, intelligent, hard work. It comes together and things just start getting a little easier. And then like you said, Bo, you want to get to a point someday where you might not have to work as much and put that much time in. That's true. What ends up happening, in my opinion, is you get more efficient with your time. Mm-hmm. You don't waste as much time on frivolous, wasted outings. You know, I'm at that point where I've, you know, I've got two boys, one in college, one in high school, married. We've got a lot going on. My boys are playing sports, and my other boy's a tournament bass fisherman. Oh, trust me, every hour that I get a chance to go out and do my scouting now and put time in, I'm not wasting time out there. I'm not screwing around. I mean, it's, it's get it done and get it done smart and don't waste time on things in the past that, that literally were, that were just, you know, time consuming, but you got nothing done. It's, you know, (laughs) that's where it is for me now at, at my age at 50 is be extremely efficient. And, and, you know, as I've gotten older now, I'm having to work on, the conditioning, the taking care of my body at an older age to be able to handle these mountains. And that's something for me right now that's getting really important to me is preparing myself for the next 20 years to be able to do this in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, the efficiency standpoint that you said there is like, it's so big. And I feel like that goes no matter what you're doing and, you know, whether it's hunting or anything else in your life, you know, as you gain experience with it and everything, it just comes second nature to become more efficient with doing that and with scouting. And, you know, even in, you know, I'm still, you know, young and everything, but there's still a lot of things that I'm a lot more efficient with when it comes to scouting than I was even five years ago. And it just, it's a constant learning thing. And I, I, I love it. And that's, you know, what brings me back year after year? I think the ability to get on maps nowadays, and I think, you know, you're, you're on the right track of really learning how to read maps. And then you couple that with what you've experienced with boots on the ground. I think one of my greatest strengths at my age is being able to literally just get on a map anywhere, anytime, topple map, look at the elevation, look at the terrain features that I want, that I like, 
look at all the surroundings, the roads that are in the drainages or the logging country. And then I jump on Google Earth. I overlay it with actual, you know, updated habitat footage. I'll zoom right in and look it all over and boom, go out, tromp into that spot. Bam. Everything I want to see is there. That happens a lot now versus 10, 15, 20, even 30, you know, 20, 30, even when I was younger, that's to me where I've really made a big jump in efficiency in the last 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And having those tools, you know, we have these tools available to us now. Yeah. Helps me see the big picture much better. Oh, very. It's it's so much like, I mean, I, I remember too, like when I was younger, like my dad having all the, just the topo maps laid out and he had them printed out for each or he bought them. I don't remember exactly, but had them for specific areas and they were all drawn up on real neatly and had all those and they were, you know, they're folded up and put in different spots and, <laughs> you know, and, and now uh, by a click, you can have the topo layer. You can layer that over top of an aerial image and do so much. It's crazy. And the, the amount of, you know, resources we have, today for that kind of stuff i'll tell you what helps me more than anything is the ability to put my map my map on my phone and slowly drive through the mountains and be looking at all of the hidden top topography as i'm driving and boom i'll just stop park and hike because i see something i like you can't see it from the road mm -hmm. you know I do a ton of that now when I scout in the summers, drive, watch my maps, watch it on my cell phone as I'm traveling. And I see terrain features and habitat. I get a look at it personally right there out my window, but I also see what I want to see two or three or 400 yards away. I'll literally just pull over and bail off and go for a hike for two or three hours. Yeah. I mean, that's good stuff. And then, you know, I'm a lot like your father. I grew up on topo maps and I have oodles of them just like he did where I spent my whole 1980s and nineties and early two thousands, literally maps laying everywhere, organized notes written all over them, statistics all over them of where I saw bucks, where I found bucks, where I found scrapes, you know, those years that, you know, that experience like your dad has, or I feel like I have, that all comes with just time. I mean, you young guys like my son or you, you guys, that's just a matter of putting more time in with that to where the big picture is so much easier to see. And it just, it'll just click, you know, for you. The, the more time you guys put in, I tell my son the same thing. It just clicks easier and easier um, later on. And, you know, I'll tell my son all that. He'll say, yeah, but you always can just find a big buck in the big sheds. <laughs> and he goes, oh, you know, and he goes, you just know right where to go. How do you do that? And it's nothing magical. It's, it's experience. It's, it's understanding the big picture of what you're looking at and pinpointing the most favorable areas to investigate. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I, uh, I, I agree. I mean, it's just, it's awesome to be able to have those, those features and being able to, to do that kind of takes a little bit of the, um, the learning curve. And if you use the tools that are available to us, you know, 
help reduce that learning curve a little bit from what, you know, you started out with and some of the things that you had to, to go with from the beginning, I guess. <laughs> Pretty nice to have it in your hand anywhere you go. It's, you know? am- it's amazing. I'm sure you, <laughs> I'm sure you download and you're, you, you younger guys are better at all this technology than even myself, but being a teacher, it's helped me be kind of in the know with what the younger generations really use and like and Gosh, there's times where I'll have my students say, I'll say, hey, come here. Come and look at this app with me. You guys show me what you think of this. And they're amazing. They're like, oh, Mr. P, here we go. Here, let me help you. And boom. The next thing you know, I'm running it like a, you know, like a 15-year-old kid can. Yeah, that's <laughs> So that's funny. been helpful to me. But, but it definitely is amazing what we can get off our maps nowadays. It map is. study, understanding what those maps mean in correlation with what the actual – actual country means when you walk into it and of course too bo being able to read the sign when you walk into it yep you know (laughs) you know all of that just comes with time so yeah absolutely awesome well troy i think uh i think we covered a lot in uh this podcast here and i could probably go on for a lot longer talking to you about it but i think uh i think we we covered a lot of topics and and yeah i'm 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 real happy with how this one went. Uh, is there anything else before we, you know, kind of end this show here that you'd like to, like to end it on? Yeah, I, I would love to just say to all the listeners, you guys that are hunting the mountains and hunting these big mountain whitetails, even shed hunting right now, have this mindset. Even if you don't find a lot of sheds in a day, that's going to teach you something. It's going to tell you something about where your deer are, or where they're not, but you're going to get some great scouting in. Because your deer don't always shed like Bo, like you and I both talked about. They don't always shed where you're going to hunt them. So stay, keep really positive. Pick up on all of the old rut sign, the trails, the travel routes, the bedding areas, all of that. Even if they're shedding somewhere else. And log all that information for later hunts. And then hopefully also you get your deer figured out of where they're actually moving to to shed, where they want to hang out in the winter. And hopefully you're finding those antlers too. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a, you know, you're never strike. You're never striking out when you go out on a shed hunt or a scout. You never are. <laughs> you're always There's learning always something. something to learn. <laughs> yep. 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 And, and that's a good thing. Yeah. More, more often than not, I'm not finding a shed or, or whatever, but it's always, it's always something you can look back at and, and learn from or take something from either, Oh, I'm not going to go back in there again, or I need to, you know, peel apart those layers a little bit more. One last thing, Bo. About 10 years ago, I had a guy warn me. He said, yeah, you probably don't want to shed up in there, shed hunt up in there. And he wasn't being rude or did, wasn't worried. He just said, hey, that area really gets hit hard. And we, you know, there's a lot of guys that shed hunt it. And he was being, he's a good dude and an honest guy. And he was like, telling me you're probably not going to find much. You might be wasting your time. I have literally, since I talked to that person found at least 200 sheds in that area. And my point is this, you know, we, we are talking about some shed hunting here in this episode. A lot of people walk by sheds. (laughs) A lot of antlers are not uncovered. There's a lot that goes into truly breaking down an area when you shed hunt 
like you talked about your father or the way we do it versus just going and looking for antlers. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, I also found some of the biggest sheds I've ever found in this area and have killed a couple great bucks out of it because of the fact that I didn't let what he told me deter me from going and checking it out for myself. Yeah. Uh, Hey, that's a good point. I mean, how, how easy is it to walk by a shed? Like, think that you're looking at this one specific area, this small spot, depending on how it laid, how it dropped. There's there's so much that comes down to it. And just because someone walked through it doesn't mean it's necessarily blown out. Bo, it's literally the difference of having your head at one direction versus the other when you walked by it for, for half a second. Yep. Yep. It, it really is. And this is why I know that. My son has flanked me 20 yards away since he was eight years old. My shed dog that's six years old now has worked in front of us now. It is unbelievable to me now, the sheds that I've missed and I've done great when I was younger and on my own. And this is why my son will pick up stuff that I never see 20 yards away. I will see something that he doesn't see. And he's better than me at it. In my opinion, his eyes are unbelievable. My shed dog will find stuff within 20 yards of Tyson and I that we would have never seen. And we're gritting all day long, 20 yards apart all day. Mm-hmm. It just blows my mind what, what our team, what we do as a team, as far as picking up sheds turns out or, you know, accumulates, you know, the production that we get versus Back when I did it for years, 20, 30, you know, 20 some, and I didn't get, I didn't have, I didn't have these boys till the early 2000s. They didn't start shed hunting with me till about 2010. So yeah, all those years of me finding all those sheds, looking at what Ty and I and our shed dog have been able to do in the last five years has opened me up to a whole different perspective on what I've missed. Yeah. That's uh, and and you know like you said like I I wish I wish I could have someone follow me around because I'm sure they'd have a great day like they could literally stand probably ten feet behind me and just <laughs> two people walking and just fall on the same tracks as I do I'm sure they'd do probably three times better as I do. <laughs> Bo, I was Bo, I know you want to cut this off and you got to go, but I was on those tracks a week ago or might have been two weeks ago. I had tracks everywhere in the snow where where a guy had come through and cleaned me out. I talked about it earlier, got in there before me. Yeah. I still found three sheds. Yeah. I still found <laughs> my horn dog, my antler dog did it. He found the three tough ones that that guy missed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And his, his boot tracks were 15, 20 yards away from all of them. That's insane. So, so, you know, look for pieces of antler, um, if you see anything that you think's an antler, make yourself go check it out. Carry a small pair of binoculars with you so you can glass something that's 25 yards away that might be a piece of an antler sticking out of, a, you know, the grass or, or some brush or some debris or whatever. Uh, we, we're real diligent about checking anything that looks like an antler, too. And every now and then it pops up being an antler. And we're like, yep, glad we didn't. Glad we didn't pass that one off as not a, as a stick. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those you know that's all just it. 
it all boils down to just, again, that, that discipline, that effort, that you got to like it too. I mean, we love it. It's like, it's almost like a little competition when we go out. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, I look we're, forward we're, to it. Like the springtime, like that's what I, every day at work, like, I'm like, can't wait till I get out and I go out even for a couple hours after work. I don't care where it's at, what I'm doing, just love doing it and just spend as much time. Like I was telling you earlier, I record, I try to be up on my podcast recordings ahead of time. Cause I don't want to talk to anybody during March. Like that's our time when the snow is starting to melt. I can get out. Like I just, I, that's what my focus is. I'm not, you know, Sheds are cool and I, I love finding them too, but like just the whole idea of getting out and learning and scouting and the, everything, the whole picture of it is, I, I love that time of year almost as much as I do hunting season. I do too, Bo. I love February to June, like it, as much as hunting season. Yeah. It's, it's where you do all your work. It's, it gets you in better shape. You feel better. Uh, yeah, you, you fall- learn a ton about your ground. Yeah, you get the satisfaction of finding some sheds and, you know, I get to do it with my son and my shed dog too, so it's a blast. Yeah, you fall in love with the process of it and and that's that's what's yeah. awesome about it. So, I guess, Troy, what, um, I guess, where can people, you know, find some more information on you and uh, follow your journeys as you kind of go into this, uh, you know, this winter and spring scouting season? Well, I... I finally started a little YouTube page. I don't, I have probably a hundred videos on it. A lot of it's just buck videos, uh, the hunting stuff, scrapes and all that, just little clips of bucks, but Troy Pottinger on YouTube, my Facebook's pretty jam full. I got a few spots left, Troy Pottinger and then mounted MTN underscore man 33 for my Instagram. That's a great place to follow me. Mm-hmm. That MTN underscore man 33 mountain man 33. And then I went ahead and fired up a little Twitter account at Mountain Man 33. So yeah, Mountain Man 33 or Troy Pottinger, you guys can find me. And I also have been doing a lot of I've been doing I've done a couple of your podcasts. I just did another one the other day locally out here. Um, I'll keep that stuff updated on those pages. And of course, I'm filming and videoing for uh, Whitetail Addictions TV. I just sent off all the tie and ice footage of our last two bucks that we killed last year that's going down to them, uh, public land mountain bucks. I just sent all that footage off the other day. So lone wolf custom gear and whitetail addictions TV on YouTube. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, Ty and I, hopefully Ty and I get a, uh, episode there of the two bucks. We killed a, a public land 151 and a public land 162 together, uh, last, not this season, but the past season. So anyway, yeah. And hopefully lots more to come. Yeah, and and the last thing I want to say is I got to meet, you know, a bunch of those guys during the show season from Lone Wolf Custom Gear and and Whitetail Addiction. So it's it's been uh, it's cool because you talked to me about them and and um, been always you know wanting to meet them there and they're great great people. They really are. They're they're salt of the earth, hardcore guys, and they're just been really good to Tyson and I over the years and. They've always included Ty because they, they got to meet him when he was eight years old. He learned, he went to the filming school out there for whitetail addictions in Iowa. We all went out to Andre's place. So they've known Ty since he was young and they fell in love with him. They thought at first, what's this guy doing, bringing his kid. And then after they talked to Tyson for about five minutes, they're like, 
I think they honestly thought, holy shit, this, this kid's for real. He's, yeah. not <laughs> He's not daddy's little boy. This kid is serious about whitetails. And Ty's a really smart young man to where he's always been very articulate. Um, yeah, they saw his passion for it. And by the end of the film training, this is no joke. The producer that was there said he, he tested out the best. <laughs> That's awesome. I think he was eight or nine years old. But serious kid, always been, you know, just good people. They treated, they treated us wonderful. And you know, I, obviously, I love the stands. Mm-hmm. I love what they're doing right now. Lone Wolf Custom Gear is putting out some great products for all whitetail hunters, and especially us public land guys that want to go deep, want to be able to be mobile, want to be able to move on a buck, want to not have to leave your stand in the woods. They got it's. That's what I said in this season was all all of their gear, and that's what I've hunted out of for years. But that new lightweight seven pounder, yeah, is unbelievable. Yeah, it's pretty I, amazing. I used it a ton. I, I used it a ton this year for any time Ty and I hunted together. We just packed that one in and throw it in the stand so we could have a second stand and hunt together. Sometimes it was great. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, and the Buck Fever Synthetics too. My my scrape urines. The synthetic urines are incredible. I've been using them forever, and they've just been lights out out here in the Northwest. That's awesome. Yeah, and I sent you a picture um, after the last podcast when you talked about that. My dad had some buck feeder synthetics in the in the basement that he's had used. I think I sent it to you, but <laughs> yeah. And did you you know did you have luck with your Pennsylvania deer out there on it? Did they like it? Yeah, oh yeah, they, yeah, they loved it. Yeah, it worked great. Good. Awesome. We got a lot of those whitetail addiction guys using it this year too, and re- spread out all over the country. The guys that I had, you know, I told the guys, any of you want it, let me know. We'll get you some. And uh, Troy, you know, the owner of Buck Fever, Claiborne, he's awesome. He's like, yeah, you just tell me any of those guys that want to put it to the test, let's do it. And got great feedback this year from the Whitetail Addictions guys that chose to use it. Yeah, they really liked it and they want more. So I think they're seeing that there's definitely something to hunting and keeping close track of your community big hub scrapes and licking branches and way more than just for a couple weeks out of the season. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. All right, Troy. Well, um, again, it was great talking to you again, and I'm glad we got to, you know, follow up with, you know, another podcast based on the, the first one we did. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure this won't be the last time we're talking. <laughs> hey, thanks again, Bo. I appreciate everything. And, you know, I wish you the best luck out there and to all the listeners, uh, you know, go out and tackle these mountains and these mountain bucks and, you know, be resilient, be disciplined and enjoy it. Enjoy the whole process. It's extremely rewarding when you knock one down. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more. And so good luck to you this uh, spring here, Troy, and I'll be waiting for some pictures. All right, we'll go get, we'll send you some shed pictures soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.